Welcome to Continuing the Conversation. I'm Carl Amuzu. And I'm Glenn Collins. Fos Church is a community creating space for everyone to find hope, beauty, and purpose in the story of Jesus. Continuing the Conversation is one of the ways that we're trying to create space for an expanded dialogue and interactions based on the conversations we're having at Fos Church. The book of Genesis takes us from the primeval Adam to Adam and narratively carries us through some of the most formational stories of our faith. So many of us grew up hearing these stories in ways that captured our imaginations as children, but left us wanting as we began to engage them critically. This week sums up our community's conversation that takes a fresh look at these stories to create space for them to be subverted and reimagined as they offer us a new way forward. This week in our final conversation from Genesis, we are exploring the story of Joseph. This story has become one of the quintessential narratives we tell about overcoming obstacles in life. Many find inspiration in the meteoric rise of Joseph from slave to second in command of all of Egypt, but we often fail to talk about the impact of these shooting stars um, when they finally land. But before we step into the conversation, we're privileged to be able to have one of our old dialogue partners here with us. So Dr. Randy, would you introduce yourself? Sure. Thank, thanks a lot. Um, my name is Randy Furushima. I was uh, uh, born and raised here in, in Hawaii, did some schooling um, uh, in uh, New York and Boston, and came back to Hawaii in uh, 1985. And uh, most recently, I've been uh, president of Chris Pacific Rim Christian University, of which both Carl and Glenn have been a part of. And so I uh, really enjoy uh, just engaging people in conversation. So it's good to be here. Yeah. And again, uh, we just want to thank you for, for being present with us uh, this week. And um, again, like, so when we, we just want to jump in and basically we start off by saying, asking if there's any thoughts that anybody had, any particular thoughts that came from this pre, the, the message that came from this week. And so, Dr. Randy, just, uh, we'd love to just kind of offer that to you first. If you want to just like, did you have any thoughts or anything that kind of comes to mind as you reflected on our time together on Sunday or anything from the message? Uh, yeah, I, there are a few things that stood out for me. I, th I think the first one is that I was really impressed uh, by how personal uh, the story of Joseph is. It's not merely a narrative that, uh, that helps us to follow the story of faith in Scripture and in Genesis, talking about the people of God. But uh, Joseph is, uh, you might think that he is someone that we can't identify with because he was, you know, a, a king or next to the, uh, next to Pharaoh, powerful man. Uh, and we, none of us are really that close, you know, very few of us to that kind of power, but somehow we identify him and we identify him both as victim because we like Joseph have somehow been thrown in the pit by others or, or maybe our, we've slipped into it ourselves, but through circumstances. So we can identify that part. Um, but, uh, within that, there's also the the ability for us to kind of rise up from the pit, and we are sort of flabbergasted and surprised, and we cheer on for Joseph because he's kind of like us. We we want to get back and and uh, not so much get revenge, but just get some justice or restitution to us. And so, on so many levels, the story of Joseph is universal. But what struck me particularly. Uh, to your question about or your inquiry about what struck me is uh, the issue of abuse and which came out in uh, the, the questions that we did have. And I think that that was probably one of the most passionate 
um, areas uh, because we are all in some way or another, especially during this time uh, that really um, North America is going through is, is about the abuse that can, can happen uh, to us and, or to our friends or to our family. And how do we deal with that? And how do we deal against, how do we break that, that cycle? Um, because it seems like Joseph, for one, the victim of abuse now uh, cycles over and now becomes the abuser, if you want to put it that way, or the exploiter rather than one being exploited. And I think to, to really think about what that means for us, I'll just say is just struck me as being very personal, passionate and sensitive and I think shows the kind of vulnerability that we need to have when we when we talk about these issues. Oh, that's beautiful. I know um, part of what really struck me this Sunday was a rereading of the narrative of Goshen, since often we skim over it as just it's the best land, and so we just give a simple reading. But when you see it as the tool of power to put Joseph and his family on the border where people invade and that those even though he was technically protected by power his family was still the cost of doing business for empire and in that moment of his family got to be the buffer zone for when they get invaded your people will still die first it well, just that, that, yeah that's that's so true. That, uh, yeah, I think you, you got away. When I when I first heard about about this part, it was uh, it was just so sobering, and then I I actually got uh, angry at the whole thing. And when you look, when you actually look at the text, um, I didn't mention this earlier, but where did Joseph and or Pharaoh get the idea uh, to give uh, Jacob and his family the land? And you'll see in the text that it first appears way at the beginning. Uh, it in other words. This was premeditated. This isn't something like, okay, uh, let's see, where should I put you? Hmm, let's look at the, mm, no, no, they knew exactly mm-hmm. what plan they needed to, to look at. And like being a good world leader, Pharaoh and Joseph, they knew where their vulnerabilities were. They knew where the enemy was. And so they, they had this in mind all the time, except mm-hmm. they gave it the mirror of, this is the best land. You know, and it, it's almost, um, to me, it's almost like when you, you know, want your child to eat vegetables, okay, and, and they refuse to eat it, and you say, oh, no, this is like the best vegetable, the best food, you know, it really is going to taste good, and then they take a bite out of that carrot or potato or celery or, or whatever, tomato, uh, and it's not as good as ice cream, okay, so they were taken uh, for that. Um, so what that tells me is I think it, it unveils something that's just a critical part of what it means to be a leader, and that is your integrity. Mm-hmm. Does, is your word true? Is it honest? I mean, is it really the best? Um, and I'm just wondering what would have happened in the scenario as it played out if Pharaoh and Joseph were honest? Would Jacob still have come you know, with Benjamin? Would he still have settled in the land of Goshen? And uh, it's uh, amazing. You know, another, if I can fill in another detail of that story that has kind of bothered me, as, as uh, it's bothered me because um, of the relationship that I thought Joseph had with his father. 
when Jacob comes to the land of Goshen, uh, Jacob doesn't invite him to um, his court or his office or his home. He Joseph goes out to Goshen on a chariot, right? And the text says on a chariot. Why, why do you have to include that? You know, why? <laughs> who cares how he got there, okay? So it's almost as if saying in, in those times, in ancient times, if, if you say a chariot, that's equivalent for us today in the 21st century to say something like, he came in his private jet, mm-hmm. okay? That's exactly what it was. So it's like, if you have ears to hear, you'll hear it. Now for us, a chariot, to me, when I first read that, it doesn't mean anything. Yeah, that's what they use, chariot. But when you say private jet, already it changes the story. So J- J- Joseph goes in his private jet to see his father. Um, and that's something to think about. I don't have easy answers why. Maybe he didn't want his father to see the wealth that he had accumulated. Maybe he he wanted to show Jacob that, hey, this land is good enough. Hey, even I myself will come to the land and, and greet you. Who knows? It could be that and many other reasons. So you can mm-hmm. see in the story so many elements uh, that that reveal, I think, to us who, who Joseph was. Oh, um, to me, whenever I read that part, because chariots were always equal part um, power, uh, both financial and military, because you had to be a certain class to even have one. It was um, almost a little bit underhanded and petty, since his dream that got him belittled and berated by the entire family of my sheaf will rise above everyone else's. And then you can't have a more grand entrance because he's not going to ride in a chariot by himself. So obviously his retainers would be coming with him. He comes out and not only did little brother make good, but you guys are going to bow down to me right now. Like it's a very polite debasing of every person in front of him. I think that's excellent. That's an excellent insight into it. Then you're absolutely right. That's exactly what it was. Um, and if you take that image further of what the chariot was, um, it, w- it wasn't just a means of transportation, right? It's, um, mm-hmm. It was, and perhaps, you know, even my metaphor of it being a private jet is incomplete. Maybe I should have said it was, uh, you know, like a bomber or something or a fighter jet or something, my own fighter jet, because it did have militaristic tones to it. Mm-hmm. Of course, chariots were an element of, of war, of, of warfare, so they used it there. So yeah, even more so. You, I mean, you made the point even, you know, even deeper, which is, you know, what what was being uh, communicated uh, with with that, and and along with that, and the relationship between war and sort of wealth, or making money, in a sense, you know, it's it's there as well. I remember, if I can give you a New Testament, you know, when when Philip goes and meets the Ethiopian eunuch. And, and interprets this portion of Isaiah that, that we find in the book of Acts, you find that the Ethiopian eunuch, who um, was really uh, in, a, in a very high position um, in his kingdom, uh, travels to Jerusalem on a chariot. And again, there you have that, uh, that image there. Uh, and there it means particularly his wealth and position and power. Mm-hmm. Uh, so you have both in the Old Testament and the New Testament this image of the chariot, which is this very sort of, in some ways, ambiguous symbol for uh, privilege, 
mainly and power uh, and its relationship to war. And, um, and that, that's something, that's another topic, by the way, because uh, we all know that nations actually make a lot of money when they go into war. And mm -hmm. so there's a relationship there uh, uh, that we don't need to get into all the details, but uh, I think it's not, not that unusual to, to see that metaphor uh, in that way as well. No, definitely. And uh, one of the things like, like like what you're saying right now, it, it leads into also what stood out to me. But like, again, depending on the era when when this story was actually written down um, yeah. and, and, and what chariots represented. Right. Again, like in the when you have Israel under Solomon and all of a sudden you have this collection of power and it talks about, you know, like he was a seller of chariots and things like that. Right. Yeah. So like like that profiteering off of that. And, I, and for me, at least. If, if it's being written, looking back at the story of Israel, and then all of a sudden, like like the chariot kind of arrives as a symbol of opulence and power, uh, it, it, it kind of, to me at least, highlights the people reflecting back on why they are in um, exile. Why, like, why are things the way they are? Even right, like there's like these moments where power shows up, and we capitulate to power. We find ourselves being comfortable with power in ways that maybe we shouldn't have been. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, I mean you. You're making a point as as Glenn did so well uh, in that. That's I think uh, when you see the text, that's that's what you see, and the um, you know the writing I mentioned. By the way, the dating of you know when the Old Testament was written or the First Testament was written, um, it's it's you know it is the the stuff of what what scholars spend their whole lives doing, and they trace it through linguistic things and grammar and all of that kind of stuff. But it seems pretty sure in terms of the, the content and and uh, of of what um, uh, ex, uh, Genesis is trying to say is um, there seems to be some consensus that would be around the fifth and sixth century, which is um, you know before Christ, which is very near the end of the the Babylonian Empire and the oncoming of the Persian Empire with Cyrus, and so there is something there uh, to be to be said. And it, it was as if, you know, and that's another story, by the way, um, not to, we can see it in the Bible, but you can see, you know, why did Cyrus send the, the, the Jewish people back home? History tells us they, he also sent other people uh, that they had uh, were in exile there. Let's not, let's not think naively that, that Babylon or, or Persia had, had only exiles from, you know, <laughs> from the, the from Israel uh, they they actually had many others because this was a, a conquering uh, foe that that went every place and brought them and and that's because that he had his own sort of political agenda so it's not like he was such a good guy oh it's now now it's time for you to go back home I'm such a great guy um, but it points to the theological and historical issue of the diaspora which I think is is there in the Joseph story, um, and the diaspora just simply um, understood is uh, that the scattering of the people of God who have no home, and the person in question and why it's relevant here is that Joseph is not at home, uh, or is he at home? You see, that's the question. He, of course, is is not in his homeland where he was born and raised, so he's in Egypt, but he has made Egypt his home. And therefore, he is living in diaspora, 
and he seems to be enjoying it, right? Mm -hmm. He seems to be um, uh, taking advantage, if you will, of his position. Now, uh, it, does that make him a bad person? Uh, no, I don't think so, because I don't know what I would do if I were captured and thrown into another guy. I, I would want to get to the, the guy at the top so that he'll know who I am and that I, you know, I can, I can maybe have better living quarters, like, you know, like running water and a toilet and food, uh, that kind of thing. You know, why not? Uh, the question is how much you're going to compromise and at what cost mm -hmm. and what happens when you get there. Are you, yeah. Do you turn blind to the, to the poverty and, 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 and to the, uh, the people that are there, or are you even more sensitive to that? And so that's, to me, is the human condition. What are we going to do from where we are, from our perspective, about what we see? And really, are we really seeing or have we intentionally become blind to uh, what is around us? And I'd say that fits into the um, entire narrative of the First Testament, which you have multiple cases of. Do you want to just explain First Testament for some people? The Old Testament or the First Testament, um, which is Jews in a foreign court. Because you have the story of Joseph, which echoes the story of Daniel, which goes with the story of Esther, and these multiple stories of what is the righteous thing to do, what is the holy way to live, what is the most honoring when you're situated in power. And all three of them have vastly different answers for how do you honor the story. Yeah. But exactly. Before we get lost into that because I realized I just opened up a bag of other stories that are cool and we're going to go into the head, heart, and hands questions. So I don't get to tell you what, I, what stood out to me, man. I thought you did. I didn't get to say it. My apologies, my good sir. <laughs> Carl, what stood out to you, brother? What stood out to me was, no, um, the part, well, I just wanted to, like, the part that stood out to me, though, is just actually what we've been talking about. Mm -hmm. I, I just actually wanted to add one follow-up comment on to the diaspora part, like diaspora part, because I think for me, at least, as as someone who is like multi-ethnic, um, my ancestry is is African, like Togo, West African, um, and and growing up and being raised in Canada, and so there's this notion of living in the diaspora for myself. Like I, I, I relate very heavily to that that notion, this this idea that you are at home when you're not at home, and you but you also have no home, and so like there's this nomadic thing that happens to your existence, and and I can understand like when Joseph all of a sudden finds himself moving from you know slave to second in command to to to, to pharaoh and that 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 idea of looking for security when your exist when your entire existence has basically been in um security has always been eroded from beneath you and and so that idea of like why would i leave this in order to go back somewhere else where that somewhere else never felt secure for me and so it's just something that, that i was reflecting on this this past week as i was thinking about that notion of being at home even even though like, like like especially like being in Canada or North America, we have this idea of reality is like there's there's a very deep colonial history like um, in, in these parts. Empire is very is very deeply rooted in these parts. Uh, the history of this country is full of, of sorrow and 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 brutality at the hands of, of the colonial powers. But at the same time, it's kind of created this space where. I think you know we we like I feel like I, I myself personally and I know and multiple people they feel more comfortable being here than other places in the world at least you know you know what I mean so it, like it's like I can understand that tension and that juxtaposition of like what I want to leave 
um, the, the places that power has created uh, in order to find something more equitable and more and, and you know more equitable or even just to return to where my people are from or do we find a way forward in light of what, what has happened in the past and understanding that okay like this is what power created but there is also an equitable way forward there's also a way that we can there's a there's a way that we can imagine a new future together um, both with the oppressed and the oppressor in in finding liberation in, in these in these places and so that's just something that that's been I've been reflecting on this past week since uh, the message and it's actually interesting just for your own, since I've known you for a while, your own journey in understanding um, your otherness, uh, being, as you said, multiracial in Canada. Multi-ethnic. Multi-ethnic. My apologies. Um, Multi-ethnic in Canada is before you would have very much said, yes, we should be like Joseph, get as close and as tight to power and hold on to as much of it as possible because <clears throat> me and mine will be protected. Mm -hmm. And I know, and as you've processed, you've come to this place now that you're trying to build a community that could both deconstruct uh, notions of power to create in the presence of empire, almost a neutral ground where all people can sit and have voice, yeah. which is a, almost intentionally stepping out of that narrative and saying, these are the options you gave me, but I won't sit in those. I can write it in a new way. Well, definitely. That's good. That's good. All right. Well, with that, we should jump into the head, heart, and hands. <laughs> so we always like to ask three levels of questions called head, heart, and hands. Heads are conceptual. They're the way we structure things in our mind, the schemas that allow us to say life functions this way. And those questions will address the different ways we think things work so that we can critique them or reflect. Then we'll move into a heart. And within the heart, it's a self-reflective that in light of these stories, how they come into contact or impacted our own, so that in that posture we can see where we've embodied some of them and how we might be able to write a different ending, which enables us to step into hands questions, where we ask how do we make this distant reality tangible? How do we make a little bit of the kingdom of God notion present in the lives around us and those who gather? All right, so let's jump into the head question. How does the story of Joseph change when viewed through different perspectives? Glenn, why don't you jump into that first? I know for myself, it, um, it changed because as a kid, um, especially coming from a conservative, white, um, more fundamentalist church in the States, is this was the right to power. How we always knew that if we're patient long enough, um, eventually we'll sit by Pharaoh too. And that was kind of presented as our hope that there is this manifest destiny. Eventually we're, we're going to be seen as the good and we'll get all rights. But in getting to see how adopting power um, actually turned Joseph into someone who re-traumatizes other people, who even sees some of his own lineage as people who can be put into a buffer zone in case a, another empire comes to invade Egypt suddenly shows that that notion for me it fundamentally changed the hero into a more complex person who because hasn't been able to deal with whatever it was for him to come close to power couldn't find a new way out so he just started repeating abusive patterns mm -hmm. uh, and i just wanted to say like um like it's interesting in the way that like you were raised with that story 
and and like the like I would say the insidious mythology that that kind of emerges from that that idea that if you wait long enough, if you just sit and you be patient, there's a manifest destiny that kind of whole notion for you. Um, I've, like it's been interesting to watch that play out in different church contexts that I've been a part of, where they use that as a as a way to try to pacify people to actually keep them in positions instead instead of having ambition to to grow ambition to change ambition to to learn or whatever right it's like well no no just be patient be like joseph eventually mm -hmm. you will dot 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 and 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 for me it's just such an insidious mythology that tries to it works its way into somebody's soul to actually keep them complacent and, and so no, that's interesting from a, a position like from a person of color for for the um white voice it meant that I never had to see myself as the oppressor. My worst charge could be, I did what I had to do. I did what Pharaoh said I had to do, um, but it's okay, this is God's blessing that I get power. So even in my narrative, which is part of the American narrative, um, cisgendered white male is the ideal and everyone else is different. Um, we never had to see ourselves as abuser because we're just waiting for our power, even though culturally um, I represent the majority of power in the country itself. Yeah, well, yeah, Dr. Randy, I, for that question, like, I'd love to hear your thoughts on that. Yeah, thank you. Um, uh, this, the, the question asks whether the story changes um, when viewed through a different perspective. Of course, the text of the story uh, does not change, or we change, right? Uh, so just wanted to make that obvious thing. <laughs> And the thing is that, of course, we change. The, the text has always been there. It's not as if, uh, you know, some Bible publisher went and erased a story that you read as a child. But like Glenn, I was I was I was raised in a very conservative evangelical background with a good Sunday school, and I heard this story many, 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 many times. And um, the way it's portrayed is, um, of course, that you take one element of the story, which is actually kind of minor. Um, and that's, you know, Joseph's amazing technicolor dream coat. So to use that uh, Stephen Schwartz, I guess, phrase. Uh, but basically, uh, all it says in the text is that it was just like a robe, a fancy robe. So be it that. Uh, but the point in that story um, that I've struggled with uh, is that uh, the reason why Joseph uh, got this robe is because he was the favorite son. I mean, Jacob had favorites. And so already, I remember as a child thinking, oh, okay, I guess God has favorites. So I spent my whole childhood saying, God, are you my favorite? <laughs> I mean, not every day, but you know what I'm saying? I'm saying like, well, I wanna be who, you know, what kid doesn't wanna grow up being a favorite? Uh, especially a younger kid and, uh, what, uh, and you know, I, I don't have, you know, 11 brothers, but I do have an older sister who was smarter than me and everybody paid attention to her uh and here i was you know uh i wasn't the favorite of the school because i wasn't as smart as her but on the other hand you know as a child you grew up with these uh, I ideas of, of of what it means to to be a favorite and i struggle with that um and i and i still do in fact uh, a corollary question a sidebar question is Maybe this whole thing just started with Jacob because he shouldn't have had favorites, and if he had done didn't you know didn't give Joseph the, his his coat, then, then maybe uh, maybe all of this wouldn't happen. But you see, but on the other hand, then we wouldn't have a story, yeah. and we wouldn't have a narrative. 
So, <laughs> so this is part of it as well. So you, you have a flawed character, as we we're saying now, Joseph flawed, but also Jacob. Uh, J- Jacob could also be very human and flawed, uh, and we, we know why, you know, because we know why Joseph Benjamin was his favorites. Well, anyway, uh, all of that to say that that's, uh, that's something I've had to uh, struggle with because I've, I've changed. And when you read the text, you see that. But let me share with you my most radical change in perspective that happened only as I was doing the study for, for this. Because I have preached on this verse for so long, and I mentioned it a little bit earlier. But remember at the end, Joseph says, uh, you know, don't be afraid. He's talking to his brothers. Am I in the place of God? I don't know where that comment comes from, but he says, am I in the place of God? And then he says this, and we have heard this so many times in countless sermons and teachings. Even though you intended to do harm for me, God intended it for good. And so my understanding of this has always been, okay, bad things are going to happen to you, okay? You're, you're going to get pounded on. You're going to be thrown in the cistern. Uh, but, and then Romans 8, 28 kicks in. But all things work together for good, okay? So God's going to tend it for good. So we bring that concept taken out of context as well to interpret this. So don't worry about it. But when you look at that and just let the text reveal itself, we have to ask the question, Joseph, good for whom? Good for whom? So what you intended was to do harm for, but God intended it for good. And you notice the next phrase after that says, in order to preserve a numerous people. And I think that that's, that's the part that I don't trust about Joseph, frankly, which is that he is speaking on behalf of God. So this is my change in perspective. We have to look at what Joseph says. Is he speaking really on behalf of God? He knows that God intended this for good for them. Look who's speaking, Joseph. And so is can we trust Joseph? And I think that question cannot be answered. I think that's the question we have to think about and we have to reflect on it. For whose good is that? Because it was certainly for Joseph's good and and the kingdoms and the empire's good, for Egypt's good, but was it ultimately for the good of his brothers? Was it ultimately for the good of Jacob's family? The irony in all of this is that Jacob and his family are now living in diaspora because they're living in the best part of the land, Goshen, right? And so, interestingly enough, Joseph is saying, hey, just make the most of it. He's like exploiting and influencing and um, co-opting them into his own previous role, and he's expecting them to live well. Well, as you know, later on, where does Jacob eventually get buried, which is symbolic of where he had set us? Not, not there. He goes back home. And so maybe that, that's the part of the story we need to look at, too. Uh, but, uh, you know, my change is I don't know whether I can preach or teach on that verse again, what God intended for harm, uh, what you intended for harm, God will intend for good. I'm not quite sure about that because you have to ask the, the follow-up question. Yeah. Um, oh, that's good. Good for whom? 
is good. No, good for the people in power, or or actually really good for you. So anyway, that that that's the the stirring up that happens. Yeah, and I, I like 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 what you're saying there, and it's making me think about the part in the message where you talked about like the diaspora part that that Joseph could have actually sent goods home to to yes. to Jacob and them, and so having them actually come to Egypt was a point of manipulation and a point of actually displacing them and, and, and almost putting them in a place where like, Hey, I want you close so I can keep an eye on you. Right. Like kind of idea. And so they're like, he could have had them living well where they were. Like it, he didn't have to transplant them for them to have luxury in, in a sense. And so like, like I, remember, I remember when you were bringing that up in the message, I, something I was thinking a lot about as well is what was Joseph's reason for moving them? Because ultimately, like that move, that shift is what, you know, led ultimately to the to the enslavement of the of, of the of the Israel, you know, the Hebrew people, and you know all that and their bondage and different things like that. And so, like, so Joseph is actually setting up his people to be enslaved in the way that he enslaved Egypt throughout the famine, right? So, like, there's 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 that notion of control and and power, mm-hmm. and like that for me, it leads into the part that that where the shift in the story was the idea that that cycle of abuse part where Joseph goes from like slave to enslaver. I got like, like before I never read the story that way. It was more, I read it as Joseph went from slave to savior of everybody. Um, but actually like Joseph is directly responsible for the enslavement of his kinfolk generations later. Like, cause he, he didn't have to bring them there. He didn't ha- like, like it was all about manipulation, power and control. And, and I think it goes into that notion that like, if we don't, if we don't actually begin to think about the ways that power we hold on to power, then um, it doesn't really matter who's in power because whoever's at the top is going to oppress those who are below them in a sense, right? Mm-hmm. Where his Joseph's brothers oppressed Joseph, Joseph got power, and all of a sudden now he can oppress them, and we have to begin to like actually deconstruct and um, tear down like that paradigm of power. We actually have to rethink. Well, what is, what does power look like? What is power like? What is what? The, like, do we need power from that perspective, right? Like. Yeah. Um, and so that's something that really shifted in the, in the narrative for me is that I think the story is less about Joseph, the savior of all people, but like more of a reflection on the idea of this is what happens when people move into like when, when, when people, when power shift, when the power lines shift, um, people just end up, they, they just end up utilizing power the same way the people before them utilize power. It's just whoever's being brutalized and crushed by it gets changed. And that's, that's the only thing that's shifting. And so, like when I read the story of Joseph, I feel like that's almost the reflection that, that that I see happening in that narrative. I don't I don't know if the author is actually intending that, obviously, but I feel like that's the like like as like the is like the Israelite people as as a group, um, they've constantly seen that they like, where they've been in power and they were the they were oppressing and then they're being crushed by power and so on and so on. And I wonder if as the story was being retold um, over and over again and and finally being written down, if it wasn't being kind of reinterpreted and retold in a way that says, let's be careful about the, about how power comes about next time. Well, that makes sense yeah. in light of just for Genesis, just for Genesis, since in the small family unit, as he gets sold into slavery and then in Potiphar's house, he sees that power only protects those in power. So he gets abused by the wife and then sent to Potiphar's jail because Potiphar would have been over, would be the um, person over the jail at that time as well. And so power still saw something useful, saw a necessary body and just got shifted. Then it gets shifted into service of Pharaoh. 
And then with the narrative, it says, Pharaoh rose, which did not know Jacob or Joseph. And with that, you see that power made him complacent. And then once the people who could give power were forgetful, out of sight, you become a slave again. Like it was never a secure position. You could just become complacent when you're allowed to wield power for the short time. So I think your reading of it there is um, fairly on point for at least the uh, tenuous nature of their experience with power there. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and you you rightly point out, if I can just uh, take that point, it's it's really it's something that to think about. We can't cover it all in detail here, but it's it's a role in the power of memory. Mm -hmm. uh, because once we forget, uh, that we it, it doesn't happen. Somehow remembering it brings it back into reality from something ideational and conceptual to the reality. So jumping to the New Testament, of course, when Jesus does you know, the, the breaking of the bread and the offering of the cup, do this in remembrance. And so memory and remembering is a very, is a very real part of, the, of, the, of the, the substance of that initial experience. And so when you have people forgetting, um, you just lose all, all, all of that connection. Mm -hmm. um, I also want to make point of the fact that uh, that it was. I like what you said, Carl, about uh, you know just you know how, what do you do you know when when you're in that that position and and we might ask what's the motivation and I still feel like most of the leaders or people in position of power, and I'm not just talking political, but in uh, in, in civic leaders and and as well as even religious leaders um is the is that the motivation is fear fear that they're going to lose something that was given to them or something that they felt they earned whether it be power status wealth etc whatever that might mean that's important to them but it's it's a fear of what that is and so why did joseph want to keep jacob and his family close to them I think part of it was based on fear. I don't, I don't know whether he quite even, rem, uh, I don't think he he had it in his mind that his brothers actually, uh, you know, in a sense, uh, his he, he thought his brothers were going to now go ahead and, and actually kill him. I mean, that is a possibility, right? Mm -hmm. uh, maybe this coat of many colors, symbolic of the privilege that Joseph had, uh, maybe that was still in his mind uh, and what happens because he never he never denounced the dreams that he had uh, and dreams are uh, are there for uh, dreams are something that he probably always remembered as well uh, they're very significant and of course all the Old Testament but I want to jump to the prophets because it just prophetically a general statement what will happen later on is that this fear um, is based on actually a very misguided and unhealthy sense of pride. Uh, it's not just self-confidence, but pride. And pride is the thing that, that caused um, the nations to, uh, to divide and to, uh, to live a life without God uh, in their lives because they could make it on their own. Uh, it's, it's amazing what happens uh, later on as well. But you see seeds of it here. And it's almost as if, talk about breaking the cycle. You know, it's really interesting. This is, it sounds like a joke, but it really isn't. It's like 
we're, we're not, you know, Yahweh is not called the God of Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, and Joseph. He's called the God of Abraham, <laughs> Isaac, and Jacob. Cycle stops, right? Cycle stops. Could have easily included Joseph there. Um, and uh, when I saw that and realized that, there must have been a reason. So I think we need to look at the lives of Abraham, Isaac, and, and Jacob. And within that, I think, is really pronounced. My quick answer to that is we've got to look at God's relationship with his people, with God's people. And it's one of covenant and one of promise. And so I'm not quite sure what that means when that cycle uh, stops with Joseph. Was Joseph the one that nullified, not the covenant, but at least nullified the flow? that God had had started with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And why isn't Joseph, you know, part of that? I, I think that's how serious uh, it is. Uh, and I think that the story then, uh, by ending in Joseph, I think makes a statement about what has happened in all of Genesis. And I have a, I, I don't want to uh, uh, take advantage of this time, but I wanted to hear from you, both of you actually, so that I can do a little less reflecting. But um, I realized that this story that we did on Joseph was the last story uh, in Genesis. Uh, and, um, and maybe I'm anticipating um, a question, uh, but just along uh, the head uh, aspect of it, um, do you see any commonality or emerging um, similar insights um, that, you know, we've talked about the, the particularities of Joseph and his story, but you've seen uh, all of the stories, right, uh, throughout these past few weeks. Um, and I think it would be helpful for those maybe listening here, but also for me to, wh what, are, what have you gained, what are some general insights uh, that you have gained about or change maybe some similarities, some general things that, that you have seen in in all of these stories together in terms of the change of perspectives by looking at these stories in the way that you have. I Sorry, that's kind of an unfair question. You weren't <laughs> thinking that that was gonna come, but I, I still, see I'm teaching a class now, so I expect uh, you to respond. No, no, it's all, it's all good. Um, Glenn, do you wanna jump in? You want me to jump in first? You jump in first, man. Okay. Um, yeah, I think like like for me for me going through this series, what what it has been, the the shift or or like the common thread, like the common shift is reading the stories from 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 the underside. Like what is the like 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 we 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 opened up the series by talking about you have like the main version of the story and then you have the subversion of the story. And so what happens when we read the subversion is it it sub it subverts the main narrative. And 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 as we walked that out as a community. Um, we got to watch people's, like literally people's, like the light bulb go on for people. It's like, I have never ever thought about it from that perspective mm -hmm. before. I have literally heard that story hundreds of times since I was a child and I've never ever even stopped to think about that. And so like when we unpacked the idea of creation or when we unpacked the story of Eve or when we unpacked the flood or Hagar, um, we, what we did, like, like taking it, the, the subversion, like the subversion, the, that, ver that narrative and looking at that part of it um, I think for at least for me and, and having it happen week after week after week and watch the conversation week after week after week open up and unpack new things for people 
um, and just like the conversation, I think the one that was for me that the, there was some, two really impactful moments, but one that was really impactful for me was people wrestling with the notion that God can repent. Like, so on the chaos, when we talked about the flood and the chaos one and that idea, like, like where it, it was just like, what do you mean God can, like, it was almost like, what do you mean God can repent at first? Cause God doesn't change. Like God's immutable. We, that's what we've learned that since I was three years old. What are you talking about? But then all of a sudden it's like, well, what if the immutable nature of God is that God actually is the God that, that grows and the God that changes? Like that's actually the immutable part that God is dynamic um, versus static or something, you know, things like that. And, and being able to actually play with those ideas as a community and watching the subversion that like, like keep on like washing away is it was like, you know, pulling back layers or washing away layers in order to, to reveal something more beautiful than any of us could have imagined individually and have it emerge um, as a community for us. So, so that for me, at least that was like the shifting perspective is that the way that we tell stories, especially from the underside, from the subversive side, um, it has this, this, this beautiful power to wash away um, the privileged ways that we have that we have seen those stories. Mm, that's awesome, man. Um, I know for me, in going through this, it was less like I enjoy seeing, uh, hearing people and seeing people respond to the stories that were getting to retell and to reshape. But honestly, I just nerd out with them. So my favorite part is getting to break them apart and sit in the text. And it seemed like throughout Genesis. There's this notion, because we hear in the creation stories, um, bringing order out of chaos, but the rest of the stories seem to be a, a desire to make things static and controlled. But every act of static and controlling, whether it is Adam trying to um, subordinate Eve and getting to hear how, like we pointed to, um, Timothy also subordinated Eve to control the women in his day. The daughters of Eve became... Um, marginalized to make sure the sons of Adam could rule that getting to hear the naming of God saying well no Eve gets the same name that I'm called throughout the Psalms that Eve is named the name of God and the idea of the sustainer and the absolute strength there which would go against how we see it it breaks away from control and then with God changing having the diamondism coming to Hagar which points to the story of Joseph it has the same um, naming of pain there as it does in um, Exodus 2 when God said, I heard the pain and I responded. So we got to see that not only is there a lack of control and every time they try to close their fist too tight around control, um, God deconstructs, becomes iconoclastic, breaks it. But the first time God is noted to say, I am the God who shows up was in the response to an, an enslaved Egyptian. That it was the pain of Hagar that taught God how to be the God of Exodus. And that's the first time we get to see it. So it's, it's always from these side little moments of chaos that reshape the main narrative that real beauty and potential comes forward. And it made the text and the story so much more life-giving. Because honestly, if we just go with a simple historical reading with no nuance, as soon as you know Joseph's age, you're done with it. You're like, okay, well, Potiphar, I know his position in Pharaoh's household. There's nothing else there. But it's been in the potential for these subversive outside readings that have made it life-giving, challenging, and something that we had to sit in tension. Not something to know, but something to be known by. 
And it was in that that I thought there was beauty in what we were doing. That's good. Thank you. That was really um, great for both of you. Thank you so much. Oh, sure. Well, I think it's maybe it's a good time for us to, to transition to the heart question. Um, and the hard question is, Joseph was sold into slavery, and when Joseph found power, he ended up enslaving others. Joseph ends up repeating the trauma he experienced at the hands of his brother. What do we do, um, or sorry, how do we break cycles of abuse? Right, so like we're watching in, in Joseph's life, there's that systemic pattern that happens. Um, and then how, like how do we step into that? How do we lean into that in order to break that? Mm. In, in this, there seems to be a notion of um, being able to give depth to the characters. Because if within Joseph's pattern of abuse and just a survival narrative, he has no other choice but to say, I'll grab onto whatever power I can to survive. And being able to have a deeper story, it gives him a moment to pause. At least it gives us a moment to pause and being able to witness the cycles to say the stories don't have to end this way. Mm, that's good and I think like Dr. Rennie you like you even were touching on something before we transitioned to the, the previous question um about like the cycles of like you know like Yahweh being the the God of um Abraham Isaac and Jacob mm. not Abraham Isaac Jacob and Joseph and so that even even there was a shift in the in the, in the pattern that was happening in the cycles that was happening in the way that God was even named in in that moment I'd love for maybe maybe if you could speak to how you, you see that idea being played out in, in breaking the cycle of abuse even. Yeah, that's a, that's a really good question. And uh, it, it has, uh, to me, when we, when we talk about that and, and see about that, um, there, there's some, we can say that there's some good cycles uh, that, that ought to be perpetuated. Uh, uh, and we can see good examples uh, of that. Uh, because of, and we, we see it in, in so many different ways, even in the New Testament with uh, the complementing of, of people that have, have gone through different cycles. But, but uh, the, the term abuse means uh, that uh, something has been ab used. In other words, there's been a deviation. There's been, there's been something that was unexpected and was dangerous and was hurtful and painful and alienating uh, to, to someone. Uh, or to a people. Uh, so we're not talking about individual uh, abuse. And one thing I appreciate, not only that, not only individual abuse, but corporate uh, and social abuse. And what I appreciate about some of the sharing uh, that, uh, that is happening is, is that mu much more of a sense of connecting to the, the general idea or of, of abuse. And that it's not just my problem, it is our problem it is uh, it's something that we deal with together. And so I think one of the values or one of the, the elements of how to break cycles of abuse is uh, to say that you can't do it on your own. It's not an individual issue. It's you cannot do it with an individual private methodology. Uh, it has to be done corporately. It has to be done with others because other people are involved in the abuse uh, issue and experience. And how you do it, uh, I think, will come 
and take some reflection. But I think in order to do that, you have to you have to admit that it's not going to be you because people will say I I can't or I won't, but it's other people together, and that is the power of the community. That is the power of the body, uh, in Christian words, it's the power of the body of Christ that we are members of each other. So if you are abused, I'm abused, and therefore everyone uh, contributes to the to the reconciliation or restitution of the body from from this. Otherwise, the cycle will continue, uh, and it's going to because what you do individually is not going to be enough. It doesn't really complete anything. The cycle will show up someplace mm-hmm. else. You, it's, it's a, you know, we have different terms to see it. We've using it. We're using it a lot today. Uh, when you have people that believe that there is systemic racism and others who say, oh, no, it's just all in deep pockets. It's in that city, that, you know, that town or, or that, that state or province. Uh, is it systemic? You know, that's, that's where the cutting edge is. People don't like to, if you don't believe that anything's systemic, then uh, you're not going to do anything about it and you won't approach it that way. So systemic um, the solutions require systemic discussions and systemic uh, sort of sharing of what it is we can do together. And there are examples that I don't need to tell you that has been done systemically. Um, but I, when we think about breaking the cycle, uh, I think it's very difficult to do it on your own. And it, it begins with um, you or people together uh, forming a solidarity of of intent uh to uh to say uh, basically no more and what can we do about it uh and the and the sh- and along with that comes uh this shift the problem mm-hmm. with joseph is that he was a loner in mm-hmm. fact if you look at his entire narrative something we haven't looked at um yet but if you look at it from a literary standpoint this is a man who did everything on his own. He was a self-made man. Now, many self-made men are personally very gifted. And Joseph is no doubt gifted. He was a seer. He could interpret dreams. It's a gift. You might say it's a gift from God. Yeah, God gave him that gift. But he decided to do it alone. Right? And when you do things alone, uh, his... his um, being abused, he of course it was he was the only one in that cistern, and he was the only one that sat in that second chair to Pharaoh, and so this is part of the the Joseph identity, is that it's a it's a story of someone who has gone to it alone, both as victim and, and as victimizer, and so I think the cycle has not been broken. Well, if you continue on beyond Genesis, it wasn't broken, right? So yeah. they continued in into slavery and. Uh, was erased, Joseph, as you said, erased from the memory of the people. So he did it alone. And I I think that that's not a programmatic answer, but I think that that's an insight into what abuse can be and how we can, how the Joseph story can teach us and show us that. Definitely. And I like like what you're saying there about like, even like the the need for community, because it's in isolation. Um, You can't, like like, there's this all inability to actually break the cycle in in isolation Mm -hmm. even. Right, because it still resurfaces once reconnected. Um, yes, and I think that's one of like like like, like just looking at, at current culture right now. Um, 
one of the ways when, when, when abuse happens, like one of the things, like we talk about cancel culture, like so-and-so did something inappropriate, boom, they're canceled. They did something bad, canceled. They did something evil, canceled. Um, and, they're, they're, and people are, are shunned into isolation, right? And so like, like for me at least, that, that completely severs any arc of restoration, any arc of redemption or reconciliation or, or even healing. On, on, on all sides even because like, again, like um, I think it was it's Willie Coleman that talks about the idea of liberation being um, when the oppressed and the oppressor are free from the system of oppression. And quite often like in our society today, we, we, we want to free the oppressed without freeing the oppressor from the same system and then, and then often just repeat the cycle. Like, mm-hmm. so maybe then the oppressed become the oppressor and so on and so on. And I, and we saw that, we see that in a story of Joseph. And I think, like, I just love what you said, like, like, like we actually have to bring it into community and people, we actually have to do the work in community. And there's, there's like, like whenever we, we shun people to isolation, we're actually just, um, it's like, it's almost maybe might be pushing pause on the abuse, but, but as soon as that's replugged back in, in, in any capacity, or it, 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 it just reengages, right? Mm-hmm. It's, it's, it's like, it's like, it's a thumb drive that's programmed with a virus. And, and so unless you actually do the work of dismantling, you know, like, like actually removing the virus from the, from the operating system, it's, as soon as you plug it back in, it's going to function the way that it was functioning. Well, and um, what I love in hearing both your guys' responses to it is psychology now talks about within families the myth of the problem child. Because in most of these systems, you want to just be able to name the one problem and say um, typically it'd be the oppressor now and not say that the whole family system, the whole family dynamic has created these roles that sustain and continue abuse. And so when you just focus on naming the one conflict and not trying to say, how do our systems enable this conflict to always be present? There's no way for you to fix it, which was beautifully pointed out when, cause I never thought of that part of Joseph was always in isolation um, by his very visions from God as a child, even in his household, he was isolated. Mm-hmm. Uh, that, I'm gonna have to reread the story with that lens. Well, definitely. Um, well, we'll call it, like, I know we normally would transition to our hands question, um, but just in light of time, um, I think like we kind of talked a lot about like abuse, the ending the cycles of abuse and things like that, which I think are very, it's kind of that, like that, the heart question kind of lended itself already to the hands question. But I would love to open it up for any more space. If anybody has any final thoughts on like all the stuff that we talked about on the story of Joseph, and we'll kind of just give a, a couple minutes for that, and then we'll just wrap up. And so maybe Dr. Randy, if you have any any kind of final thoughts. I have a, a just a final thought regarding how we read scripture and how this has opened up. I really, really like your idea of there's a version and then there's a subversion that which lies uh, underneath. Um, I have another complementary picture of that, and that is that what you're doing is having a radical interpretation. Rad meaning uh, roots. It it is it gets down to the root, and it could be that this could be the very source and and radical nation a notion of what that text uh, was meant. That the source of it was that, uh, and so we need to be uh, in order to get a radical interpretation we need to be subversive I, I love that and i think that that does work together and so I, I i love reading scripture that way and when we start reading scripture that way um my uh, i guess uh, let me close with not so much a summary but maybe a challenge and exhortation 
to those who are listening is that to keep your 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 heart and your mind open to such interpretations uh, and maybe some of you are already doing that but what happens is that we need to be prepared to change and to be able to see that there is uh, uh, a way in which we can look at the text in, in such a way uh, that to see it from the underside or from the other side is to is to see the multi-dimensional aspect of what truth is because the text stands for what it is the text doesn't change we change in terms of our own approach to it and to be able to to take that initiative to do it i think uh, really has has been one of the most transforming decisions i made in my life when i decided to start to look at scripture and start to teach scripture in such a way and if we do that, you can see that much of the text in scripture is so much deeper and so much more profound than what we had been learning, perhaps when we we're either a younger Christian or when we we're a child. And so that's what I, I, and so the Joseph story to me epitomizes is at the end of the, of, of the, uh, the narrative in Genesis, that the, this is what God wanted us to know about who he is. Uh, and it's, it's really a reflection of who we are. And on a more personal note, I often pray and think about, you know, am I, uh, who am I? I always think, who am I in this character? In, uh, who am I in this narrative? What character can I most identify with? Uh, and if it's Joseph, that's pretty sobering. I think as a child, I would say, yes, of course, I want it to be Joseph. I get the nice coat, but uh, later on, God will, you know, take care of everything and I'll, I'll end up with a happily ever after ending. But I'm not so sure now. And, I, and I'm, I'm thinking that, that, that maybe uh, God wants us to put ourselves in the story, but to be careful uh, to make conclusions about these characters because they're a lot richer, they're a lot more complex, uh, a lot deeper uh, than, than we can ever imagine. And that's, of course, what we call mystery. That the mystery of God and the mystery of the truth in scripture uh, it really feeds us each day. So I've enjoyed being part of this. So thank you. Oh, yeah. Thank you, Dr. Wendy. Yeah. Um, Glenn, any, any final thoughts at all? I don't want to follow that. That that was poetic and profound. I like it. All right. And we ended in mystery. All right. Um, well, for myself then, uh, just a final thought that, that, I, that I had in the mix of this, especially in, in light of what you're sharing, is that like, like Joseph, again, like the way that I was taught to read the story, is that all of Joseph's endeavors were noble intentions, right? Um, and again, like, I, like, like we'd have to psychologize Joseph and make assumptions about what he was actually thinking to say that they weren't noble. Maybe, like, maybe everything Joseph did was he thought he was doing the best that he could do. I, I, we have no idea about what he was actually thinking in the mix of that. Um, but I think what it, what it does is it translates, for me at least, into these current moments is quite often um, we legitimize uh, oppression by calling it our noblest intentions. And so even if it was done in like, you know, like, like the way that they talk about well, like slavery, well, we're, we're just trying to uh, humanize the savages. Um, or when we move into police brutality, well, if they, if they just learned how to behave, then these things wouldn't happen, right? So like the police are given the noble intentions versus the other, the oppressed. And I think, that these reading these narratives over this last past few weeks has said like we first and foremost need to start our reading 
with the person that's being oppressed in this picture. And if we, and, and so when we look at police brutality, um, yeah, should the person maybe not have, like, like, like with Rashard Brooks, for example, the, 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 the man that was murdered in, 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 in Atlanta by the, by the police officers there, should he have grabbed the taser from the police officer? Probably not. That probably wasn't the smartest thing to do. Um, but when we read the narrative from the police officers, like, like from, the, from the position of privilege and power, then Richard Brooks is at fault. But when we read it from the underside, it's like from every moment since they knocked on his window at the Wendy's parking lot, they provoked and pushed and, and kept on trying to enforce some sort of code of order that he was violating by being present and, and, and drove the narrative to the tragic ending that it happened. And so when we, read, when we learn to read from that subversive space, um, we end up, I think, with a lot more empathy for people that we don't understand, and then we can also deconstruct the things that we call noble intentions in our society, mm. the things that people have supposedly done for the, the best reasons, and, and it becomes almost irrelevant. It doesn't matter the reasons you did it. Here's the results, and we need to, we need to actually walk that back. We need to actually have restitution. We need to actually have reparations. We need to actually look at the damage that was caused and then repair it, heal it, and, and find a new way forward that doesn't keep on reopening those wounds. And so like, that's just something for me that as we're exploring this narrative and exploring these narratives that has really stood out for me. No, it's yeah. moving. That's Let's, great, thank you. Especially with that line you said, um, we always give noble intention and trust to the power system, which demands that we question anybody outside of power. Yeah, all right. Hmm. Well, with that, Glenn, do you want to just give us a, a quick summary of, of what we talked about today? <laughs> um, I'll say this is going to be one of the more challenging, can we summarize moments? Um, okay, so as we come to the end, if this has been something that's caused your mind to jump around here, all the ideas, we try to give you three walking away points in, in summary. So for the head, said, how does the story of Joseph change when viewed through different perspectives? we discovered that the story itself doesn't change, but the nuancing different perspectives actually challenges us to change in light of new readings. And it subverts the, norm, the normative or the normal reading. It subverts the straightforward narrative to allow us to see room and potential for new lives to come forward. Within our heart where we've reflected into the story, Joseph was sold into slavery and when Joseph found power, he ended up enslaving others. Joseph ends up repeating the trauma he experienced at the hands of his brothers. How do we break the cycles of abuse? And we had found in our dialogue that one of the ways we break cycles of abuse is by naming the systems behind the actions, that we stop making the autonomous self, the individual is always a single person with a single act and start seeing how a single person carries out the structures, narratives of the things surrounding them. So yes, we have agency and responsibility, but also in breaking cycles, we realize that part of our agency is taught from the systems that we're told keep society moving forward and naming those systems, we have the potential to create new ones that will never be per perfect, but always be in need of the critique of the powerless, which brings us into the hands where Joseph's policies left people with little choice, manipulating them to make choices that were against their best interest. How do we lead in ways that empower instead of oppress others? And actually, I'll just say, um, 
Carl's line summarized it best when he said, we start trusting the powerless voice. That when we can mark out power and who has the right to speak in a system, that often those people have power by stripping others of their ability to have voice and agency. And if we want to create policies and ways of representing that do not force people into cycles of self-abuse, of choosing others' good over their own ability to live, we have to create a way for us to listen to and value their voice, their right to self-name. Because only once we value their voice will we value their lives. And only once we value their lives will we have systems that can create a multiplicity of life-giving. All right, thank you, Glenn. And uh, thank you, Dr. Randy, for joining us today and uh, for leading our community uh, in, in the conversation around Joseph and that whole narrative around empire um, was, is really insightful and I know really impactful for our community to be able to, to dialogue that, that this past Sunday. And I think for people going forward, listening to this podcast, um, just lots of insight, lots of, lots of wisdom um, and, and new perspectives, just being able to go forward. So really appreciate you pouring into the folks the way that you have. Well, thank you so much. It's been a pleasure and honor. Um, and so thank you and God bless you both, uh, Glenn and Carl, for the work you're doing. All right. Thank you. And with that, uh, we're just going to come to a close. And as always, we just want to thank you for joining the conversation. And um, if you want to connect with folks, you can always get in touch with us at www.fos.church. That's www.fos.church. And um, there's tons of ways for you to be able to connect with the community, and we look forward to you continuing the story with us. Peace.